How's it going, Marlins fans? Hope you all enjoyed part one of the Jeff Conine interview. This is part two right here. A lot more focus on the 2003 run by the Marlins and, of course, the eventual World Series clinching in New York in Game 6. And Jeff Conine just has so much color to add from the play at the plate with JT Snow to the Steve Bartman incident in Chicago to Josh Beckett tagging out Jorge Posada on the final out and clinching it in New York at Old Yankee Stadium. So many stories that you probably haven't heard that Conine hasn't really told on interviews and other contexts and other situations. And these are some really cool tidbits that when you look back on the World Series and that whole run in the postseason, it's cool to have that color filled in by Mr. Marlin here. You won't want to miss any part of it, and I hope you enjoy it as much as I enjoyed interviewing him, and hopefully we will have him as a guest in the future. There's just so much to talk about with a guy like Jeff Conine, a grinder who just came up from the depths, 56th round pick, and just grinded his way to the top. And those are the guys that really see the game for what it is and really see the game differently because everything didn't just get handed to them. And the things that Jeff Conine is able to point out, his perspective on things from the game in the 90s to the game today is really unique and really valuable. And I hope you guys get as much out of it as I did. Looking forward to hearing what you all think. And I am hoping that this serves as a nice little distraction from everything going on in the world. Enjoy, and let's get back to baseball sooner rather than later. There was no way you knew how capable that team was of making the run that it did. But did you know, at that point in September, the Marlins obviously had already turned it around. They went after you to try and reinforce this last-minute run to the postseason, but this is a wild-card team that probably wasn't even expected to make it, but still at least is making a push and improving. Were you at all expecting this team to really make a run in September? Did you think you really had a shot at the postseason when you stepped foot there September 1st? I really didn't know what to think. You know, I was in the American League back then. It was just, uh, I think, a year or two into interleague play. Um, so I didn't really follow the National League that much. It was pretty much an American League game that I was following. And, you know, even though this was my, you know, hometown team, I'd been with the Baltimore Orioles for going on five years. And, you know, that was my team at the time. So I didn't really know much about them. I didn't know about the personnel. I knew a few of the players, but uh, didn't really follow much. So I had no... Uh, expectation of, of success or anything. But uh, when I got there and I say within three or four days, I knew the personality of this team. Uh, I saw the talent on this team, especially this pitching staff with, you know, Beckett and Penny and Dontrell and Pavano. And it was just a, a immensely talented staff that was raw, but they had great confidence, great ability, and uh, they wanted to win. So I knew early on, within that first week that we had something special. And you really elevated your game in the postseason. Obviously, people know the the big plays, the throw at home to get JT Snow, the uh, robbed home run, I think that people forget about r- with Rich Aurelia over in that corner where it just nestles. The wall doesn't matter anymore, and you can just sneak it in. I think Alex Gonzalez did in 03 uh, to win one of the World Series games in the walk-off. That was just a little funky area that made playing left field at that stadium, pretty difficult. You robbed that home run and keep that game tied at, at, I believe in the seventh inning, those defensive plays were huge. You also were a 304 hitter in the postseason. Did you feel like your game just elevated when it mattered more in those situations? 
Well, like I said, when I got traded, I was really struggling uh, with the Orioles. I had I was putting together a pretty good season there, but I had struggled for about a week or so. And it was funny because the Marlins management was hoping that I would continue to struggle <laughs> so they could get me uh, in a trade. Um, so they were kind of clapping when I grounded into those double plays in Seattle, like, yes, he stinks. Let's uh, hope that they, they get rid of him now because he's not doing well. But, um, you know, I struggled when I came here as well. The first couple of weeks with the Marlins, I was not hitting well. Um, and I remember Jack McKeon did an interview and, and they were asking him like, Hey, you got Conine, but he's not playing well. He's struggling. He goes, and Jack said, listen, we're winning. We're still in it. And Conine's going to get hot at the right time. And, uh, you know, that last week of the season, I had a couple of great series against the Phillies and I just, you know, kind of continued that momentum into the playoffs. And, um, I think, you know, a lot of people think, oh, the playoffs, it's not like these teams bring in brand new people that are exceptionally better than they were in the, in the season. You've seen them before, uh, you face these pitchers before you just got to realize it's just another game. Um, and if you approach it as that, then, you know, it's not a, a pressure situation. The amazing thing about those hallmark plays that you made in left field is you came out of college as a pitcher. You started your career as a first baseman for the most part. I know you had some experience in the outfield, but it wasn't like you were you know, playing outfield your entire life and had that comfort there where you could just roam the outfield blindfolded. But you just learned really quickly and made some of those really, really flashy defining plays in that run. What was that like as you got better and better? Did you feel like you had this growing confidence to make that big play, to make the big catch as you started to play more in the outfield? And did you really start to trust yourself out there? Was there kind of a learning curve uh, playing out there, especially in that football stadium where you're dealing with a wall, some funky dimensions? It's not like you're just playing the regular outfield like everyone else. Yeah, I played my whole minor league career at first base. Um, and then I was in Omaha uh, in AAA. I was having a great year. And uh, that year they had just signed Wally Joyner to a three-year extension in, in Kansas City. So he's going to be playing first base for the next three years. Um, he's an established big leaguer that was a great hitter. And So Jeff Cox, my manager, who was my manager in AA, was also my manager in AAA that year. He said, listen, you're not going to be playing first base anytime soon in front of those waterfalls in Kansas City. He goes, we got to find another spot for you. I'm like, all right, where are we going? So he said, let's put you in, in the outfield. I'm like, good, let's do it. I'm out, I'm in. So I had only played probably, I don't know, I want to say about two weeks in the outfield when Kevin McReynolds, uh, the left fielder for the Royals at the time, pulled an oblique muscle. So they call up AAA and say, who's hitting well right now in the outfield? They said, hey, Conine's been out there a few weeks. He looks great. He's killing the ball. They said, all right. So that's how I got my first call up um, is as an outfielder, which uh, kind of went against everything that I had done up to that point. But you know, I told the teams that I coached young, um, my little kids, I said, hey, play every position you can because you never know when you're going to get an opportunity to play another position because at some level you're going to have a stud at your position and you better be able to play somewhere else. So um, it's kind of ironic and funny that I got, you know, drafted as a Marlins uh, player as an outfielder. Well, that's the that's the unique thing, too, because you're a perfect example of being able to adjust and adapt on the fly. You wouldn't have had the opportunities you had without being able to do so, even from coming out of college. You were able to put it together in the outfield and have that great postseason run offensively and defensively. And the thing is, is you won't admit it, I know, because you're you're very humble, but 
it was that close down to the wire to not make to not come to the Marlins in 03 with the trade deadline. And who knows what the Marlins would have done without you there. You absolutely mashed in the NLCS against the Cubs, which I want to ask you next. Obviously, you made those huge plays defensively in uh, the series against the Giants. What was that JT Snow play like the going down second by second? You see the ball coming to you. Was it one of those movie type scenes where it's coming in slow motion and you see the guy around in third out of the corner of your eye? Or was it almost just a blackout blur and by the time you blinked, the game was over? No, that play, I mean, if you look at it in real time, it probably took all of, I don't know, five seconds, 10 seconds, maybe. I don't know how, if you took a stopwatch to it. But in my mind, it took a minute. You know, I, uh, you got a guy on second base. Uh, we're up by one run. Uh, there's two outs. So my job as an outfielder, I got to try and throw that guy out at home plate. But I also have a job that if I can't throw him out at home plate, I don't want to make a bad throw and allow the winning run to go to – or the go-ahead run to go to second base. So, you know, I'm playing fairly medium depth or, or medium back depth on that outfield, which wasn't deep at all. But, you know, I saw a big swing by Jeffrey Hammonds. And uh, at first, when I saw the trajectory, I thought he got it better than he did. But I realized after a split second, he got off the end of the bat. So I'm sprinting in. It, looked, it seemed like I was sprinting for five seconds trying to get to this ball. And as I'm sprinting, I'm like, I got to catch this. I got to catch this. I got to catch this. I'm like, oh, my God, I don't think I can catch this. I don't. But do I die for it? If I die for it, that ball is going to squirt away, and then the run's going to score for sure, and that guy's going to get the second base. And all these thoughts are going through in a matter of three seconds. So I said, you know what? It's going through. It's going so slowly in my mind that I'm like, I, I don't think we have any shot at getting him at home plate. So I catch a weird, you know, it's kind of a weird short hop on the bounce up. And I said, you know what? I'm just going to hit my cutoff man, and uh, hopefully we'll keep that guy from going to second. And when I made the transfer to my hand, I looked up and I saw where JT Snow was and I just quickly let it go. And I'm like, and I saw the trajectory of the ball. I saw where he was. And I just started saying to myself, hang on, Pudge, hang on, because he's going to run into you. Because I, I knew it was going to be there in plenty of time. And I knew it was a little offline, but I knew there was going to be a collision. And sure enough, man, he catches the ball and he goes down and then like everything stopped. And I was like, hold my breath until he came back up and he, you know, that famous scene where he lifts the ball up in the air and then boogie tackles him at, at home plate and then the place just went absolutely crazy so jt snow not the speedster you thought he was when you saw him on second base is kind of what happened there well there was uh some moves that they made that uh i think they had nobody left to pinch run um and yeah obviously he's not he's a below average runner uh and i can't remember who should have been out there that couldn't play or they made a move earlier in the game that took him out or Whatever, but they were stuck with having JT Snow at second base to run that play. And, you know, when I watched the replay, he didn't really get that bad of a jump. He got a fairly decent jump. Um, just, he just wasn't didn't have enough speed to, to outrun the ball, basically. And then probably the most infamous series uh, of the last 20, 30 years is the NLCS with Steve Bartman and everything that goes into that entire series. The Marlins, you guys were down 3-1, which is yep. the crazy thing. And I myself forget that quite often because you just think, oh, the Marlins won the World Series and they handled the Cubs. But you guys were down 3-1 and you had won the first game in extra innings. And after that, it, it was it was pretty ugly the next three games. Did you guys just have any sort of 
fear that it was over at 3-1? Or did you still just have that chip on our, on your shoulder where it was like, we started the season badly and came back. What's what's a 3-1 deficit here? Obviously, you creep in thinking, you know, our backs against the wall. But we knew we had Beckett going in game, in game five. Um, and I think Jack was just really good at having us focus on one game at a time. One game at a time. Let's win this one right here. And Beckett turned turned in one of the most dominant performances I've seen, um, playoff or no playoff. Uh, he was an absolute stud, and I think that just kind of gave us a little kick in the butt, saying, "Guys, we're not out of this yet. We got this." Even though we're going to face two of the best pitchers in baseball with Mark Pryor and Kerry Wood back to back for Game Six and Seven. You faced Mark Pryor and Kerry Wood in Game Six and Seven, but you hit four fifty eight in that series. And that was a series that went seven games. You put up a 12.08 OPS, just absolutely mashed the ball in that series. What was clicking for you there? Do you think you just rose to the occasion? And what was it like playing in Wrigley Field? A lot of pressure there for Chicago, still trying to break the curse at the time. Um, you know what? I, I Even though it was that biggest situation, we were just all relaxed. We played relaxed, and I think that's why why we ended up winning that series uh, in particular and winning the whole thing is just, we were relaxed as a team. We had fun uh, each and every night. You know, I kind of carried the momentum over the last week of the season uh, into that postseason, and uh, was obviously seeing the ball really well and making contact and, and getting hits. Um, but Cubs, you know, that stadium holds maybe 40,000, uh, the electricity and uh, the noise those people made going into game five late in that game uh, was deafening. I mean, they were so – they had five outs to, to get back to the – or get to the World Series, in which they hadn't been in 80-some years. And um, I'll tell you what, it, it might have rivaled the noise level uh, at Pro Player even with 20,000 more people. And from what I've seen from uh, Chicago fans, that doesn't surprise me. People love to harp on the the Bartman moment that was right before the rally that brought you guys back into the ball game and eventually won. Did you feel like that was a tide turning type of moment, or did you guys in the dugout not even really pay attention to it? Is that something that just kind of got overhyped by the media and fans, or was that something that you figured, oh, we got a second life here, let's try and make the most of it? No, that wasn't overhyped at all. And I, I know Moises denied this claim, but I thought he could have caught that ball. Uh, we all did because we're in the end of the dugout and we're almost on the line, you know, the, the third baseline. And I see the trajectory of the ball and it kind of curving back and he leaned over a little bit. And I don't think Moises would have been that pissed if he knew that, you know, because he showed a lot of emotion after that. Um, and we couldn't believe what just happened. And we all, we all said at that moment, let's make him famous. Let's make him famous, uh, mean, meaning Bartman. And sure enough, um, by the end of the game, that poor guy was famous. Yeah, I mean, and who would have thought to the degree that he was? But it, it, it's hard to believe because usually those things, you ask a player, was it as big of a deal as people thought on the outside? And a lot of times it's not. So that, that's really what's fascinating with it is it really was a turning point then for you guys. And it, the rest was history. What was the environment like in New York compared to Chicago once you get to the World Series? You're expecting some some crazy environment there in New York, but you don't have the desperation from the fans that you had in Chicago. And probably the Yankees thought this was going to be an easy series for them. You're playing a small market team, the Marlins, 
It's the Bronx Bombers. They've got home field advantage. Did that kind of counted out attitude that basically the whole world had against you guys, did that make you guys have a little bit more of a chip on your shoulder too, going all the way into the World Series? Yeah, one of my best friends is a big Yankees, Yankees fan, and he went to the Red Sox-Yankees series, which was one of the greatest series of all time. And, uh, you know, was there for the Aaron Boone walk-off home run. And I'm on the bus from the airport going to our hotel in New York, and I, I talked to my buddy, and he's like, uh, he said, you guys are going to win. I'm like, what? And he said, dude, I was there last night or two nights ago. He goes, the Yankees just had their World Series. They're spent. And I was shocked because he's a huge Yankees fan. And he truly thought that they were just, they had nothing left. And we were going to surprise them, like you said, because they thought we're just going to waltz in here. Uh, the fans thought that way too. Uh, I remember going out there for introductions and I was expecting roars and these huge ovations for the Yankees players. And boy, it was very subdued. And I'm like, whoa, I think my friend was right. I guess we got to get these guys because they're, they're emotionally spent after what they did with that Red Sox series before us. Sure enough, you guys got them in six, not even seven. The final out, which we've all seen over and over and over again with Beckett tagging out Posada, winning it in New York. Of course, you'd want to win it in front of your own fans. That's the pinnacle. But was it a little bit sweeter than you thought winning it in New York, taking the World Series from the Yankees who have more than anybody else by a, a good margin to win it in a place like Yankee stadium. Yeah, absolutely. If you can't win at home, uh, I would pick one place that I'd want to win on the road. And that's Yankee stadium, especially old Yankee stadium. That was uh, uh, quite a moment. Obviously you're not going to have uh, the ovation from your fans because you're not at home, you're on the road, but the satisfaction of beating them in their building uh, with that history was, uh, was extra special. And someone tweeted out a, a really cool question that I wanted to, I was eager to ask you. 1997 versus 2003, you got to pick a team to try and win a World Series again. Which team would you pick? On paper, 97, like you said, really good team, really talented. But 03 just had something magical to them. What would you pick if you had to win a World Series with one team one more time? Which is the most likely? Uh, geez, that's a tough question. Um, <laughs> Really tough question because, you know, you got you look at frontline starters as um, the backbone of any championship team. And I would put both those starting rotations against each other and, and call it almost even. I mean, it was. Uh, but then you look at the 2003 team defensively. I don't think I've ever seen a better defensive infield in my life than the one we had in 03. Um, but then it goes to intangibles. I just think that. Um, the attitude of the guys on the 03 team, uh, just happy-go-lucky, played so relaxed. Um, I think that team might come out on top. And that was probably the answer that everyone was hoping you'd say just because of how fun that 03 team was to, to watch. Who was the most – I think I know the answer to this question, but who was the most fun and kind of brought up the spirit of the team in that for that 03 team? So Andy Fox was like uh, the biggest jokester cheerleader um, I've ever seen. He rallied the guys, but uh, Brian Banks was right there with him. Mike Redman was uh, hilarious. Uh, Lenny Harris, one of the funniest guys you'll ever meet. Um, you know, everybody knew their role. They knew that Jack played his teams like an American League team. There wasn't too many substitutions, uh, not too many double switches. 
uh, a bench guy knew that he was going to be on the bench and Jack ran his same eight guys out there all the time. Um, and that was unique. You know, most guys uh, would get a chip on their shoulder. They'd, they'd have a bad attitude uh, because they weren't getting playing time. But those guys uh, as a support staff was as important to us as any uh, player on the field. And a, a more personal question, it might be a coincidence, but it was just something that stood out to me. In your career, you went back and forth a lot between teams you'd already been to. You went after Florida, back to Kansas City briefly, then to Baltimore, then back to Florida, then back to Baltimore. These teams, was that more of you wanting to go back to places you were comfortable with or those teams knowing, hey, we got a good guy in the clubhouse, a good consistent player like Jeff Conine, or was it a mutual type of thing where you both were just happy to go back to where you were? Um, it was kind of a coincidence. I didn't seek those teams out, obviously, because I was free agent once and then I would get traded. So, um, But I'd like to think that, you know, I played the game the right way and, and they appreciated that and they wanted that back in their clubhouse. So that's what I always tell everybody, that they like me so much they wanted me back. <laughs> <laughs> it's what it seems like. You, you rarely see players go back and forth between the same teams over and over again. And that, that was obviously a great thing to, to happen for the Marlins. And with Baltimore, that was a place where you had a lot of success as well. Going through your entire career, too, you got a late start at, at 27, given that you played fully through college, had to play a few years in the minor leagues, and then finally got your chance around 26, 27, and played all the way till 40. How was it to try and play through those late 30s? You still put up consistent good numbers. Is it as hard as, as some people say it is? Is it kind of just one of those things where it goes into training? Or is it just some people have the ability to play at 39, 40 years old and others don't? Um, I think it's a combination of a little bit of everything. You know, it's uh, pretty decent genetics where uh, I didn't really battle that many injuries my whole career. Um, so I was pretty much always healthy. Uh, and then you go to, especially later on in careers, you go to uh, clubhouse personality too. You you go to chemistry. Um, you go to what does a, a veteran guy bring to a clubhouse? Um, obviously, they're going to look at performance first because that's the most important thing in a major league season. Is you still have to be able to perform. Um, and fortunately for me, I was you know I trained hard and um, I was able to uh, do pretty well into my later years. Um, I was very fortunate to be able to play till I was 41 years old and. Um, but at the time when my last season came around, I knew it was time to walk away just mentally, uh, physically, um, with the family, you know, the kids were getting to an age where I was starting to miss a lot of stuff and, uh, I couldn't have really, um, ended it any better than I did on my terms. Um, just ending it when I did. Before I wrap up, just a couple of questions from fans that uh, tweeted and I can't have an interview with you where I don't at least briefly talk to you about racquetball. That's a must. And you had a really great story about Bo Jackson and racquetball in Kansas city, which sparked also a thought with baseball versus racquetball. If you had to pick one where you had to be the best in the world, let's say you got to go to the plate and get a hit off one of the best pitchers in the world or go one-on-one in your prime in racquetball against the best racquetball player in the world. Which one are you taking? What's your best chance? Well, I always told people, well, there's any money in racquetball, I never would have been here. So that was, that was my sport, man. I was dedicated to that sport. Um, I played it, started playing at 10 years old. 
and that was my life. I went to the racquetball club every single day and, and, uh, I loved it. You know, I met my wife playing racquetball and, um, it was just a, a huge part of my life. Uh, I did baseball kind of on the side as something to do with my friends. Um, so if you were to tell me that if I had one sport that I could have dedicated to and, and not worry about, I would have, I would probably would have picked racquetball. With racquetball, you had the story with Bo Jackson. He thought he could beat you. What real quickly was that story? And what would the score have been if you played him? Well, uh, we were, uh, it was right after he got his hip injury. So he was rehabbing his hip. Um, and we got tackled when he was with the Raiders. We were in spring training. I'm getting my shoulders stretched out on a table, and he's next to me doing his rehab. And he just looks over me and goes, he said, hey, Conine, I heard you're pretty good at racquetball. And I said, yeah, I'm pretty good. I've been playing a long time. He goes, I want to play you sometime for big money. And I'm like, oh, okay. Uh, what's your idea of big money? Because his idea of big money and my idea of big money at that time was vastly different. He said, I don't know. I'll play you for 15 grand. I'm like, oh, my God. Okay. Um, I could do that. And the, the conversation progressed, and I don't know if he was actually serious or not, but I said, you know, uh, how many points do you want? He goes, points? I ain't taking no points. I'll play you straight up. I'm like, okay. I said, just uh, C-O-N-I-N-E on the check, you know, that you want to write to me <laughs> because I would be surprised if you would have scored a point off of me at that time. <laughs> That's unbelievable because Bo Jackson is – known as one of the greatest athletes to ever do it, but I'll take your claim on that one because racquetball is just one of those things where you got to know it. And I'd, I'd put my money on you, know, you as well. Racquetball is a sport that kind of a lot of people have played and seen it played and messed around. But if you see racquetball at an elite level, uh, you'd scratch your head and said, Oh my God, I'd never knew the ball could go that fast or they could be hit like that. It's crazy. hundred percent. I would be taking you over Bo. And, and the last question and I'm sorry to put you on the spot on this one, but a couple fans wanted to know down the road, would you ever consider managing an MLB baseball team? Uh, I don't think so. You know, I've, I've said that pretty uh, confidently over the last few years. People ask me if I would want to get into coaching or managing and um, not at this time. It's just not for me. Um, you know, my wife said, Oh, just what if, you know, all the kids are gone and they're all, you know, out of the house and you got nothing to do. And, um, but I just don't think people realize the time commitment and, um, just that's all your life is, is managing a baseball team. You're there before everybody else every day. Um, your off seasons are very busy. It's just a, a huge time commitment. I did that for 17 years. I was very fortunate to do all that for 17 years. And, um, you know, you really have to be committed and into it. Uh, in order to go back into coaching or managing. And I'm just not there right now. I wouldn't, I wouldn't totally rule it out, but I'm not there right now. I agree. I mean, people don't realize that as a manager, you're putting in just as much time, if not more, as the players and doing all the traveling they're doing as well. It's a lot on your plate. And the final question I'll ask you, if the season is to start, who do you like to be that underdog team this year? The Marlins are making a lot of great moves in their rebuild. I think they've made a lot of steps moving forward. I'd like to hear your thoughts on them. And if it's not them, who do you think is that underdog team that can make an impact this year once the season hopefully starts? Um, wow. You know, we've been out of baseball for so long now. It's like um, I'm trying to remember 
what I thought about teams as they're going into spring training. Um, <laughs> right. It's been crazy. Uh, you know, the Reds made a lot of moves in that division. Um, you know, I'd love to see uh, Anaheim. It's my kind of one of my hometown teams get a support cast around the best player in baseball, in my opinion, uh, Mike Trout. They got Rendon, but uh, they need some arms, I think, to really turn the corner. I'd love to see that that organization, that franchise, do something big. Um, and it's really tough to count out the Braves and what they do uh, on a year-to-year basis up there. They they get good talent. Um, and you look at Oakland and Tampa, they do things with the smallest payrolls in baseball that uh, I think leaves a lot of people scratching their head. Like, how do they do that year in and year out, put quality 90-plus win teams on the field when they've got the lowest payroll in baseball? It's just a uh, combination of great scouting and uh, leadership. Um, so I always like to see those teams uh, do well. Um, it's easy to buy players when you got a $200 million payroll and, you know, get the, the best guys. I like to see uh, the art of getting players together uh, that have chemistry and, uh, you know, have that, um, that it factor that, you know, we did in 2003. It was a band of guys that we didn't really um, think that was any superstars, but we came together as a great team. And I love to see that. Jeff Conine, Mr. Marlin, glad as always to be able to speak to you and pick your brain on just your amazing career and your amazing Marlins career. Uh, stay safe and hopefully we'll be back in baseball soon and I'll be calling games in the Florida State League with Griffin playing and hopefully we'll cross paths there, uh, hopefully soon. Absolutely. I, I hope um, all this goes away too. Everyone out there, please uh, be safe and be smart. And uh, you and me and Griffin can hopefully go out to dinner soon up in Jupiter after we, after you call a game. That'd be fun. Counting down the days. Thanks again. All right, Arm. Take care.